Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's new religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. Fundamentalist Islam persecutes many minorities, gay people, Christians, Jews, members of rival Muslim groups, and often this persecution is widely publicized, even if the West is unwilling or unable to do much about it. But today I want to talk about a group of people who might claim to be the forgotten victims of repressive Islamic law and its traditions. Atheists. Saudi Arabia's just sentenced a 28-year-old man to 10 years in prison and 2,000 lashes for proclaiming his atheism on Twitter. In Saudi Arabia, promoting atheism is now classified as terrorism. And he's not the first. Another online atheist, this time named Rafe Badawi, has been savagely lashed to the point where his health has been broken. I'm joined by Majid Nawaz, founding chairman of the counter-extremism organization Quilliam, who's a secular reforming Muslim, and by Douglas Murray, associate editor of The Spectator. Majid, it's interesting that Saudi has reacted so violently to an anonymous Twitter atheist. Why do you think the reaction has been so savage, and why do you fear for this man in particular? Yes, I think after the Arab uprisings, there's been a an increasing trend especially facilitated by the advent and popularization of social media, of Arab atheists being open online, even if anonymously, of their true beliefs. It has alarmed many Arab governments, but of course in particular Saudi Arabia, which prides itself as being the bastion and home and origin of Islam. Saudi Arabia sees it as a personal insult and attack on their raison d'etre and their very identity. And therefore, no surprise that they have taken this extreme measure to declare atheism a terrorism offence in Saudi Arabia. This latest incident isn't the first of an example of an atheist being imprisoned or indeed sentenced to 2,000 lashes, jailed and fined. We are uh, aware, for those who have been following cases such as these, of Raif Badawi, who has been lashed in a Saudi jail and accused of being an atheist. In Raif's case, he describes himself as only as a free thinker, and it's important to use the terms that people use for themselves. Why I'm worried about this latest example, as you've asked, is because he's anonymous, and Raif's lashing was suspended due to medical reasons, and truly, probably due to a global outcry. We don't know the name of this current victim of Saudi Arabia's medieval laws, and therefore I fear that if they were to begin lashing this person, there wouldn't be a global outcry, because he or she, probably a he, is anonymous. And so I ask anyone listening, if they do know the name of this person and if their family want that person's name to be known, to let us know so we can start campaigning to prevent this person being lashed. There's an extraordinary powerful stigma in the Islamic world against atheism per se, that is, non-believers who describe themselves as atheists. There are people like yourself, Muslims, who don't subscribe to all the traditional teachings of Islam in any school. For some, not you, but, but for, for many Muslim atheists, that's a cover, if you like. They, they describe themselves as secular, reforming, open-minded Muslims, whereas in fact they're, they're non-believers. But there is, as I was saying, this special stigma against atheism in Islam. I was wondering why that is. Is it because Islam as a religion is so predicated on the, the sovereignty of God? There is, of course, a huge stigma, and especially 
in recent days it's increased due to the rise of Islamism. Look, there are two trends that are competing with each other, but neither are good news for secular liberal Muslims. One is fundamentalist Islam, which for want of a better term, is medievalist Islam. It's competing for the attention for the hearts and minds of Muslims with Islamism, which is the politicization of Islam. If Islamism is the desire to impose any given version of Islam over society, fundamentalism is the incredibly ultra-conservative social mores of communities who, even if they don't want to take control or the state, they do want to impose their views on their family members and their daughters especially. And so those two competing trends are present and rising within Muslim-majority contexts. And of course, both are about identity. Both are about tribal identity politics. And so to break away from the Muslim identity for those who are ex-Muslim, it means these people who subscribe to these views see it not only as an affront, they see it as a direct personal attack, a direct personal attack. I wanted to ask Douglas about the situation of ex-Muslims in Britain and the reaction of the wider community to the rhetorical and sometimes physical retaliation that they face from their community and their families if they declare themselves to be atheists. This has happened. They've talked about being shunned by their family, the fact that, for example, a Muslim woman who declared that she, she was no longer a Muslim was told that her brothers could no longer get married because of the shame of it. A BBC report, rather to my surprise, said that local authorities were reluctant to tackle this problem because they felt they would be offending the religious sensibilities of local Muslim communities in Britain. Which they would be, of course. I mean, they'd be profoundly offending them. I just think, before getting that, let's just take a step back from it. I mean, the very striking thing, and it goes to what Majid identified about the global trends, is that so much is washing uh, across and towards the Muslim world as we, as we speak. And clerics see it. They see it coming. They see the atheism. They see the secularism. They see the doubt. They see heresies. They see all of these things, and they know what it is going to do to them. They know what it's going to do to the faith. They know it could be, is likely to be, devastating. So they are fighting for absolutely everything they have. And we actually don't have to go back very far to a vaguely comparable situation, not as violent by any means. But, I mean, almost 200 years ago, when Edward Pusey was sent from Oxford to go and find out what the German critics were doing by the then Regis Professor of Divinity at Oxford University. When Pusey went off to, to, to Gottingen University, he said in his memoirs that he remembered where he was sitting at the feet of Eichhorn, the great... Old Testament scholar, he said, I remembered where I was sitting when I realised the condition of thought that was happening in Germany. And I remember thinking, all of this is going to come to England and we are utterly unprepared. He saw that tidal wave of criticism and he, as it was, went back to Oxford and spent his life trying to fight it away. But much, much bigger tides, partly because they're so unprepared for it, are coming towards the Muslim world, the Muslim faith. And the clerics are simply fighting for absolutely everything they have. And they know that if they allow the first bit of that to go, then all the rest could go as well. So there is a brittleness to their thought. There is a fear which may not be unfounded. They are fighting, as I say, for everything they have. And that is why individually, even in a country like Britain, this fear of what the atheism actually means 
if that one person has the doubt, it'll catch. The person beside them will have the idea that doubt is permissible, and the person beside them will think that the doubt isn't as shameful as it was before the first person started. They know it's catching. Uh, one other thing about that is that in this country, and I think around the world, people are very disorganized on this because atheists are not an organized entity. They do not have a pope. Um, even in lieu of Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris or anyone else, there isn't a, you know, there isn't a pope of atheism. There's nobody who gets everyone organised. There, there is no central body to draw global awareness to this. So, um, you know, the local authorities wouldn't know where to turn to. There isn't an atheist centre, as it were, they could send a young person to. So that problem metastasizes worldwide as well. But, but these are huge trends, and 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 uh, they are going to go on throughout our lifetimes for a long time to come. And the pattern of secularization in different Muslim countries will vary enormously depending on the, the culture of Islam, the, the culture of the community. But there seems to be um, one thread running through this, which is that Muslims who have lost their faith or decided to reject it turn to social media in order to connect with each other and to proclaim their message, often anonymously. Maj, what do you, th- what do you, what do you think the role of social media in awakening atheism among former Muslims? Look, there's a social media cultural blind spot that's occurring at the moment. What I mean by that is in Western terms, culturally, we are increasingly aware of what constitutes hate speech, what constitutes bigotry, especially in the year of the legalization of gay marriage that's just occurred in Britain, in Ireland, in states in America, and in certain states in America, even the decriminalization of weed. I mean, we are liberalizing as a society, and we know what hate speech means, and we know what bigotry is, and though there's still a lot to do against racism, there's a lot to do against homophobia, there's a lot to do against anti-Semitism, we're making progress headway in these debates in a Western context, but they are defined by our own knowledge of them and their historic trajectory as contained within our culture. And the reason I make that point is social media companies are woefully ignorant of the equivalent hate speech in Muslim-majority contexts, and they need to pay attention to this point. Calling somebody an apostate in Britain is not hate speech. Calling somebody a blasphemer in America is probably a joke that people would laugh at on a satire show. Calling somebody a blasphemer in Pakistan means that you are telling them that they should be sentenced to death because the law still maintains the death penalty for blasphemers in Pakistan. It also means that you're inciting a lynch mob against them and that probably within the week they will be beaten to death in the streets. That's hate speech in the context of Pakistan. If even the governor of Pakistan's most populous province with all of his bodyguards and all of his wealth and all of his power wasn't safeguarded from merely campaigning for a change in the blasphemy law to the extent that his own bodyguard shot him nine times, then what, what is it for the average person on the street who is called a blasphemer to bully them into silence? So in the context of Pakistan, in the context of Saudi Arabia, calling somebody an atheist without their permission to do so is hate speech. I, I add one thing to that, which is that th- th- these movements cross the globe now extraordinarily fast and not only because of social media. In Britain this summer, uh, we've been visited by two clerics from Pakistan who are very prominent supporters of the murderer of the uh, governor who Majid just uh, mentioned. Salman Tassir. When Salman Tassir's murderer, uh, a man called Khadri, 
was praised by these two clerics who spoke at Qadri's funeral, whipped up rally crowds, praised the murderer, Salman Tassir, as a hero and a martyr. Now, those two men came to the UK in the summer for a six-week UK tour. One of the first people they met when they came to the UK was the Archbishop of Canterbury at Lambeth Palace for what was described as an interfaith dialogue meeting. And then they toured mosques around the UK. And one imam at one of the mosques in the UK said, you know, they're so popular. What what, what can we do? There are hundreds of thousands of people, he said, in the UK who support these two clerics. So these movements move from Pakistan to London to Oldham to all around the UK. And indeed, I might add, to Maidenhead to the Prime Minister's own constituency, where these two men also spoke. If people are being attacked by mobs, if they're being ostracised by their families, if the violence is, is communal violence directed against atheists, then we're not simply talking about repressive medieval religious regimes whose dismantling will bring religious freedom. I'm finding it very hard to envisage a model of religious freedom, which would create space for atheists, in almost any of the countries we've talked about. In fact, it's going the other way. Bangladesh used to be an incredibly open, tolerant, pluralistic country because in its breaking away from Pakistan, it broke ranks with the two-nation theory that was the founding concept of Pakistan, which held that Muslims need a state of their own. Bangladesh broke from that and was in its origin secular. They have a term in Bangladesh, which means religion-neutral politics. Yet even in the Bangladesh, secular Bangladesh, that has an open and, and pluralistic history, by 2015, seven atheists were hacked to death in their own homes by a mob and that's seven from a list of 84 that had been threatened and that's in one of the most historically pluralistic and tolerant countries such as Bangladesh as opposed to say Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, Saudi Arabia where we may expect this sort of thing to occur but the situation is so grave I'm beginning to call it the most persecuted minority within the minorities in the world are ex-Muslims in Muslim-majority contexts who, who come out. And, and so beleaguered is this minority that in 13 countries around the world that the, the punishment is death for atheism, and in 39 countries the law mandates prison. So social media companies have to recognise that if somebody is outed as an atheist forcibly without their permission, if somebody is labelled a blasphemer within a Muslim context, even in the West where communal violence has and does occur, when somebody's outed against their will as being a blasphemer or an atheist, social media companies need to catch up with the shifts in culture and recognise that this is hate speech. If social media companies are complicit in these persecutions, then so too, surely, are Western governments, because in many cases the, the countries permitting this persecution or directly carrying it out, in the case of Saudi Arabia, are our allies. Douglas? Yes, that's right. Um, and I, I don't want to get too close to home here, but uh, when um, Majid uh, ran the last election, uh, his Labour opponent was a woman called Tulip Sadiq, whose aunt, am I right, is the Prime Minister of Bangladesh. I was very struck, by the way, this summer when I was on one of the Greek reception islands speaking to migrants and they were coming in from the Middle East and Far East and elsewhere, about the number of people from Bangladesh among their number. And it still amazes me, I have to say, that you can have a member of the British Parliament who's a relative of the person who runs Bangladesh. And we have decent relations with Bangladesh, and this is not a priority number one. It's an extraordinary thing. I would be so ashamed if I was somebody whose 
family were governing a country where this sort of thing was normal. Let me take it one step further. Sheikha Hasina, who is the aunt, who is the prime minister, responded to these murders by politely suggesting to atheists in the national media to stop provoking the nation. Mm. Now, I'd like to give an analogy here because this is the absurdity with which we, and the discrimination, discrimination that is laden within such statements. Because what I'm talking about, the cultural blind spot, Western audiences will only understand this with analogies of experiences, of similar experiences we've been through. So think of the struggle against homophobia. If you take your minds back to 20 years ago, and if a gay man was holding a gay man's hand on the streets of Essex, where I was born and raised, and I myself as a teenager have done this, to my eternal shame, seeing two gay men holding hands in the street and thinking, why are you provoking us? You know, if you're gay, fine, you know, keep it in your own home. But to hold hands in public is a provocation. And so therefore, if you're stigmatized for it, if you're attacked for it, it's your fault because you should not have been holding hands in public. How dare you insult us like that? Now we've moved on from those woefully medieval attitudes towards gays in the Western context. Unfortunately for ex-Muslims within the Muslim context, that's what's going on. They are told off simply for existing. I'd add one thing to that as well. It's a very, very interesting analogy. There's, but there's one slight difference, which is, which is, is this, is that the, the reason why people often objected to avert demonstrations of homosexuality was that they thought that it was catching and that they might get it too or their child might get it or, or somebody standing nearby might get it. The, the difference here is that, as I say, and this is a big problem, the clerics may not be wrong in thinking that people might catch atheism. Sheikh Karadawi, one of the most hardline and well-known uh, religious leaders in the Muslim world, said a few years ago that, and this is an extraordinary thing to come from his mouth, but it did, he said a few years ago that if there were no apostasy laws in Islam, i.e. no laws that mandated death if you left the religion, if there were no apostasy laws in Islam, Islam would not exist today. So once you realise this is what the clerics realise, this is what they see, this is what they think, all of this makes sense and it simply has to be pushed back against by everybody who can and is in a position to do so, whether they're atheists, believers, Muslims or non-Muslims. Because as we all know, the only way to protect anyone's liberty of thought is to protect everyone's. Douglas Murray, Majid Nawaz, thank you very much. A pleasure, thank you. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to The Spectator's Holy Smoke podcast on the iTunes store.